This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear John Cheever's story, The Enormous Radio. Did you hear that, Irene asked? What? The radio. A man said something while the music was still going on. Something dirty. The story was chosen by Nathan Englander, whose stories have been appearing in the magazine since 1999. His most recent collection is what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. Welcome back, Nathan. It's so good to be back. Thanks for having me. Several years ago, you read a story by Isaac Besheva Singer on the podcast, and yes. now you've gone to very different territory with John Cheever. Are you a lifelong Cheever fan? I am actually a super gigantic Cheever fan. As a reader, I'm a massive fan of the stories, and as a writer, I just think it's an education to read him. He always lets you know what world you're in, and there's something I love about that so deeply. Mm-hmm. Now, when you picked this particular story, The Enormous Radio, you said that it was very unchieverish, even though it was absolutely in his voice. What did you mean by that? If I picture Cheever in my head, it's suddenly, you know, people drinking highballs. And, you know, <laughs> like, I guess what I love about it is voice-wise, it remains just wholly Cheever. You know, that's he's all over it, having written it. But structurally and, and even the spirit of it, it's almost... Kafka-esque or like science fiction, it would make an extraordinary Twilight Zone episode. Right. It's probably one of the first stories in which he brought supernatural or unnatural elements into a seemingly very realistic narrative. Yeah. And it's funny because he has so many stories. I think those are the ones that stand out. uh, You know, it's the 548 unless that train leaves at 538. It's It's 548. 548. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, when does that train leave Grand Central? But that's the other Cheever story that most closely connects for me. Yeah. But these have a, uh, they have a fabled quality to them. Maybe Mm -hmm, that's it. mm -hmm. Now, Cheever was 35 when he wrote this story. It was relatively early in his story writing career. And it was considered kind of a breakthrough story or breakout story for him in that way, partly because of the supernatural science fiction element. Do you think it's a breakout piece stylistically or? Stylistically? I don't, yeah, I don't think that's the radical part for me for him, I think what must have blown people away is it is so human and so New York, the way he draws people in the city. I mean, I can't, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more after the story, but how this story relates to our reality TV world and Facebook and Twitter, like I can't believe how current this story is. And I think then it must have just blown people's minds because it's hyper relevant. I, you know, I want to say it's more relevant now, but how could I possibly know It that? almost is, yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's anything else that people should listen for in the story? It's just amazing how it unfolds. If you look at it from like line one, Cheever in the story, he starts to unfold like one secret, one deception, and they build off each other. And you just, you, you can't have known to see them coming, but they're all in there. And that to me was just massive for me as a reader to see how they unfold. We'll talk more after the story. And now here's Nathan Englander reading The Enormous Radio by John Cheever. Jim and Irene Westcott were the kind of people who seemed to strike that satisfactory average of income, endeavor, and respectability that is reached by the statistical reports in college alumni bulletins. They were the parents of two young children. They had been married nine years. They lived on the 12th floor of an apartment house near Sutton Place. They went to the theater on an average of 10.3 times a year, and they hoped someday to live in Westchester. Irene Westcott was a pleasant, rather plain girl with soft brown hair and a wide, fine forehead upon which nothing at all had been written. 
and in the cold weather she wore a coat of fitch skins dyed to resemble mink. You could not say that Jim Westcott looked younger than he was, but you could at least say of him that he seemed to feel younger. He wore his graying hair cut very short, he dressed in the kind of clothes his class had worn at Andover, and his manner was earnest, vehement, and intentionally naive. The Westcotts differed from their friends, their classmates, and their neighbors only in an interest they shared in serious music. They went to a great many concerts, although they seldom mentioned this to anyone, and they spent a good deal of time listening to music on the radio. Their radio was an old instrument, sensitive, unpredictable, and beyond repair. Neither of them understood the mechanics of radio or any of the other appliances that surrounded them. And when the instrument faltered, Jim would strike the side of the cabinet with his hand. This sometimes helped. One Sunday afternoon in the middle of a Schubert quartet, the music faded away altogether. Jim struck the cabinet repeatedly, but there was no response. The Schubert was lost to them forever. He promised to buy Irene a new radio, and on Monday when he came home from work he told her that he had got one. He refused to describe it and said it would be a surprise for her when it came. The radio was delivered at the kitchen door the following afternoon, and with the assistance of her maid and the handyman, Irene uncrated it and brought it to the living room. She was struck at once with the physical ugliness of the large gumwood cabinet. Irene was proud of her living room. She had chosen its furnishings and its colors as carefully as she chose her clothes, and now it seemed to her that the new radio stood among her intimate possessions like an aggressive intruder. She was confounded by the number of dials and switches on the instrument panel, and she studied them thoroughly before she put the plug into a wall socket and turned the radio on. The dials flooded with a malevolent green light, and in the distance she heard the music of a piano quintet. The quintet was in the distance for only an instant. It bore down upon her with a speed greater than light and filled the apartment with a noise of music amplified so mightily that it knocked a china ornament from a table to the floor. She rushed to the instrument and reduced the volume. The violent forces that were snared in the ugly gumwood cabinet made her uneasy. Her children came home from school then, and she took them to the park. It was not until later in the afternoon that she was able to return to the radio. The maid had given the children their suppers and was supervising their baths when Irene turned on the radio, reduced the volume, and sat down to listen to a Mozart quintet that she knew and enjoyed. The music came through clearly. The new instrument had a much purer tone, she thought, than the old one. She decided that tone was most important and that she could conceal the cabinet behind a sofa. But as soon as she had made her peace with the radio, the interference began. A crackling sound like the noise of a burning powder fuse began to accompany the singing of the strings. Beyond the music, there was a rustling that reminded Irene unpleasantly of the sea, and as the quintet progressed... These noises were joined by many others. She tried all the dials and switches, but nothing dimmed the interference, and she sat down, disappointed and bewildered, and tried to trace the flight of the melody. The elevator shaft in her building ran beside the living room wall, and it was the noise of the elevator that gave her a clue to the character of the static. The rattling of the elevator cables and the opening and closing of the elevator doors were reproduced in her loudspeaker, and, realizing that the radio was sensitive to electrical currents of all sorts, she began to discern, through the Mozart, the ringing of telephone bells, the dialing of phones, and the lamentation of a vacuum cleaner. 
By listening more carefully, she was able to distinguish doorbells, elevator bells, electric razors, and wearing mixers, whose sounds had been picked up from the apartments that surrounded hers and transmitted through her loudspeaker. The powerful and ugly instrument, with its mistaken sensitivity to discord, was more than she could hope to master. So she turned the thing off and went into the nursery to see her children. When Jim Westcott came home that night, he went to the radio confidently and worked the controls. He had the same sort of experience Irene had had. A man was speaking on the station Jim had chosen, and his voice swung instantly from the distance into a force so powerful that it shook the apartment. Jim turned the volume control and reduced the voice. Then a minute or two later, the interference began. The ringing of telephones and doorbells set in, joined by the rasp of the elevator doors and the whir of cooking appliances. The character of the noise had changed since Irene had tried the radio earlier. The last of the electric razors was being unplugged, the vacuum cleaners had all been returned to their closets, and the static reflected that change in pace that overtakes the city after the sun goes down. He fiddled with the knobs but couldn't get rid of the noises, so he turned the radio off and told Irene that in the morning he'd call the people who had sold it to him and give them hell. The following afternoon, when Irene returned to the apartment from a luncheon date, the maid told her that a man had come and fixed the radio. Irene went into the living room before she took off her hat or her furs and tried the instrument. From the loudspeaker came a recording of the Missouri Waltz. It reminded her of the thin, scratchy music from an old-fashioned phonograph that she sometimes heard across the lake where she spent her summers. She waited until the waltz had finished, expecting an explanation of the recording, but there was none. The music was followed by silence, and then the plaintive and scratchy record was repeated. She turned the dial and got a satisfactory burst of Caucasian music, the thump of bare feet in the dust and the rattle of coin jewelry, but in the background she could hear the ringing of bells and a confusion of voices. Her children came home from school then, and she turned off the radio and went to the nursery. When Jim came home that night he was tired, and he took a bath and changed his clothes. Then he joined Irene in the living room. He had just turned on the radio when the maid announced dinner, so he left it on and he and Irene went to the table. Jim was too tired to make even a pretense of sociability, and there was nothing about the dinner to hold Irene's interest. So her attention wandered from the food to the deposits of silver polish on the candlesticks, and from there to the music in the other room. She listened for a few minutes to a Chopin prelude, and then was surprised to hear a man's voice break in. For Christ's sake, Kathy, he said. Do you always have to play the piano when I get home? The music stopped abruptly. It's the only chance I have, a woman said. I'm at the office all day. So am I, the man said. He added something obscene about an upright piano and slammed a door. The passionate and melancholy music began again. Did you hear that? Irene asked. What? Jim was eating his dessert. The radio. A man said something while the music was still going on. Something dirty. It's probably a play. I don't think it is a play, Irene said. They left the table and took their coffee into the living room. Irene asked Jim to try another station. He turned the knob. Have you seen my garters? A man asked. Button me up, a woman said. Have you seen my garters? The man said again. Just button me up and I'll find your garters, the woman said. Jim shifted to another station. I wish you wouldn't leave apple cores in the ashtrays, a man said. I hate the smell. This is strange, Jim said. 
isn't it? Irene said. Jim turned the knob again. On the coast of Coromandel, where the early pumpkins blow, a woman with a pronounced English accent said, In the middle of the woods live the Yangibangi bow. Two old chairs and half a candle, one old jug without a handle. My God, Irene cried, that's the Sweeney's nurse. These were all his worldly goods, the British voice continued. Turn that thing off, Irene said. Maybe they can hear us. Jim switched the radio off. That was Miss Armstrong, the Sweeney's nurse, Irene said. She must be reading to the little girl. They live in 17B. I've talked with Miss Armstrong in the park. I know her voice very well. We must be getting other people's apartments. That's impossible, Jim said. Well, that was the Sweeney's nurse, Irene said hotly. I know her voice. I know it very well. I'm wondering if they can hear us. Jim turned the switch. First from a distance and then nearer, nearer, as if borne on the wind, came the pure accents of the Sweeney's nurse again. Lady Jingly, Lady Jingly, she said. Sitting where the pumpkins blow, will you come and be my wife, said the Yangi Bangi Bo. Jim went over to the radio and said, hello, loudly into the speaker. I am tired of living singly, the nurse went on. On this coast so wild and shingly, I'm a-weary of my life. If you'll come and be my wife, quite serene would be my life. I guess she can't hear us, Irene said. Try something else. Jim turned to another station, and the living room was filled with the uproar of a cocktail party that had overshot its mark. Someone was playing the piano and singing the Whiffenpoof song, and the voices that surrounded the piano were vehement and happy. Eat some more sandwiches, a woman shrieked. There were screams of laughter and a dish of some sort crashed to the floor. Those must be the Fullers in 11E, Irene said. I knew they were giving a party this afternoon. I saw her in the liquor store. Isn't this too divine? Try something else. See if you can get those people in 18C. The Westcott's overheard that evening a monologue on salmon fishing in Canada, a bridge game, running comments on home movies of what had apparently been a fortnight at Sea Island, and a bitter family quarrel about an overdraft at the bank. They turned off their radio at midnight and went to bed weak with laughter. Sometime in the night, their son began to call for a glass of water, and Irene got one and took it to his room. It was very early. All the lights in the neighborhood were extinguished, and from the boy's window she could see the empty street. She went into the living room and tried the radio. There was some faint coughing, a moan, and then a man spoke. "'Are you all right, darling?' he asked. "'Yes,' a woman said wearily. "'Yes, I'm all right, I guess.' And then she added with great feeling, "'But you know, Charlie, I don't feel like myself anymore. Sometimes there are about fifteen or twenty minutes in the week when I feel like myself.' I don't like to go to another doctor because the doctor's bills are so awful already. But I just don't feel like myself, Charlie. I just never feel like myself. They were not young, Irene thought. She guessed from the timbre of their voices that they were middle-aged. The restrained melancholy of the dialogue and the draft from the bedroom window made her shiver, and she went back to bed. The following morning, Irene cooked breakfast for the family. The maid didn't come up from her room in the basement until ten, braided her daughter's hair, and waited at the door until her children and her husband had been carried away in the elevator. Then she went into the living room and tried the radio. I don't want to go to school, a child screamed. I hate school. I won't go to school. I hate school. 
You will go to school, an enraged woman said. We paid $800 to get you into that school, and you'll go if it kills you. The next number on the dial produced the worn record of the Missouri waltz. Irene shifted the control and invaded the privacy of several breakfast tables. She overheard demonstrations of indigestion, carnal love, abysmal vanity, faith, and despair. Irene's life was nearly as simple and sheltered as it appeared to be, and the forthright and sometimes brutal language that came from the loudspeaker that morning astonished and troubled her. She continued to listen until her maid came in. Then she turned off the radio quickly, since this insight, she realized, was a furtive one. Irene had a luncheon date with a friend that day, and she left her apartment at a little after 12. There were a number of women in the elevator when it stopped at her floor. She stared at their handsome and impassive faces, their furs and the cloth flowers in their hats. Which one of them had been to Sea Island, she wondered. Which one had overdrawn her bank account? The elevator stopped at the 10th floor and a woman with a pair of Sky Terriers joined them. Her hair was rigged high on her head and she wore a mink cape. She was humming the Missouri waltz. Irene had two martinis at lunch and she looked searchingly at her friend and wondered what her secrets were. They had intended to go shopping after lunch, but Irene excused herself and went home. She told the maid that she was not to be disturbed. Then she went into the living room, closed the doors, and switched on the radio. She heard in the course of the afternoon the halting conversation of a woman entertaining her aunt, the hysterical conclusion of a luncheon party, and a hostess briefing her maid about some cocktail guests. Don't give the best scotch to anyone who hasn't white hair, the hostess said. See if you can get rid of that liver paste before you pass those hot things, and could you lend me five dollars? I want to tip the elevator man. As the afternoon waned, the conversations increased in intensity. From where Irene sat, she could see the open sky above the East River. There were hundreds of clouds in the sky, as though the south wind had broken the winter into pieces and were blowing it north. And on her radio, she could hear the arrival of cocktail guests and the return of children and businessmen from their schools and offices. I found a good-sized diamond on the bathroom floor this morning, a woman said. It must have fallen out of the bracelet Mrs. Dunstan was wearing last night. We'll sell it, a man said. Take it down to the jeweler on Madison Avenue and sell it. Mrs. Dunstan won't know the difference and we could use a couple of hundred bucks. Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clement's, the Sweeney's nurse sang. Halfpence and farthings say the bells of St. Martin's. When will you pay me, say the bells at Old Bailey. It's not a hat a woman cried, and at her back roared a cocktail party. It's not a hat, it's a love affair. That's what Walter Floral said. He said, it's not a hat, it's a love affair. And then, in a lower voice, the same woman added, Talk to somebody, for Christ's sake, honey. Talk to somebody. If she catches you standing here not talking to anybody, she'll take us off her invitation list, and I love these parties. The Westcots were going out for dinner that night, and when Jim came home, Irene was dressing. She seemed sad and vague, and he brought her a drink. They were dining with friends in the neighborhood, and they walked to where they were going. The sky was broad and filled with light. It was one of those splendid spring evenings that excite memory and desire, and the air that touched their hands and faces felt very soft. A Salvation Army band was on the corner playing Jesus is Sweeter. 
Irene drew on her husband's arm and held him there for a minute to hear the music. They're really such nice people, aren't they, she said. They have such nice faces. Actually, they're so much nicer than a lot of the people we know. She took a bill from her purse and walked over and dropped it into the tambourine. There was in her face when she returned to her husband a look of radiant melancholy that he was not familiar with and her conduct at the dinner party that night seemed strange to him, too. She interrupted her hostess rudely and stared at the people across the table from her with an intensity for which she would have punished her children. It was still mild when they walked home from the party, and Irene looked up at the spring stars. "'How far that little candle throws its beams!' she exclaimed. "'So shines a good deed in a naughty world!' She waited that night until Jim had fallen asleep and then went into the living room and turned on the radio. Jim came home at about six the next night. Emma, the maid, let him in and he had taken off his hat and was taking off his coat when Irene ran into the hall. Her face was shining with tears and her hair was disordered. Go up to 16C, Jim, she screamed. Don't take off your coat. Go up to 16C. Mr. Osborne's beating his wife. They've been quarreling since four o'clock, and now he's hitting her. Go up there and stop him. From the radio in the living room, Jim heard screams, obscenities, and thuds. You know you don't have to listen to this sort of thing, he said. He strode into the living room and turned the switch. It's indecent, he said. It's like looking in windows. You know you don't have to listen to this sort of thing. You can turn it off. Oh, it's so horrible. It's so dreadful. Irene was sobbing. I've been listening all day, and it's so depressing. Well, if it's so depressing, why do you listen to it? I bought this damn radio to give you some pleasure, he said. I paid a great deal of money for it. I thought it might make you happy. I wanted to make you happy. Don't, 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 don't quarrel with me, she moaned, and laid her head on his shoulder. All the others have been quarreling all day. Everybody's been quarreling. They're all worried about money. Mrs. Hutchinson's mother is dying of cancer in Florida, and they don't have enough money to send her to the Mayo Clinic. At least Mr. Hutchinson says they don't have enough money. And some woman in this building is having an affair with the handyman, with that hideous handyman. It's too disgusting. And Mrs. Meville has heart trouble, and Mr. Hendricks is going to lose his job in April, and Mrs. Hendricks is horrid about the whole thing, and that girl who plays the Missouri Waltz is a whore, a common whore, and the elevator man has tuberculosis, and Mr. Osborne has been beating Mrs. Osborne. She wailed, she trembled with grief, and checked the stream of tears down her face with the heel of her palm. Well, why do you have to listen, Jim asked again. Why do you have to listen to this stuff if it makes you so miserable? Oh, don't, 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 she cried. Life is too terrible, too sordid and awful. But we've never been like that, have we, darling? Have we? I mean, we've always been good and decent and loving to one another, haven't we? And we have two children, two beautiful children. Our lives aren't sordid, are they, darling? Are they? She flung her arms around his neck and drew his face down to hers. We're happy, aren't we, darling? We are happy, aren't we? Of course we're happy, he said tiredly. He began to surrender his resentment. Of course we're happy. I'll have that damn radio fixed or taken away tomorrow. He stroked her soft hair. My poor girl, he said. You love me, don't you, she asked. And we're not hypercritical or worried about money or dishonest, are we? 
No, darling, he said. A man came in the morning and fixed the radio. Irene turned it on cautiously and was happy to hear a California wine commercial and a recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, including Schiller's Ode to Joy. She kept the radio on all day and nothing untoward came from the speaker. A Spanish suite was being played when Jim came home. Is everything all right, he asked. His face was pale, she thought. They had some cocktails and went into dinner to the anvil chorus from Il Trovatore. This was followed by Debussy's La Mer. I paid the bill for the radio today, Jim said. It cost $400. I hope you'll get some enjoyment out of it. Oh, I'm sure I will, Irene said. $400 is a good deal more than I can afford, he went on. I wanted to get something that you'd enjoy. It's the last extravagance we'll be able to indulge in this year. I see that you haven't paid your clothing bills yet. I saw them on your dressing table. He looked directly at her. Why did you tell me you'd paid them? Why did you lie to me? I just didn't want you to worry, Jim, she said. She drank some water. I'll be able to pay my bills out of this month's allowance. There were the slipcovers last month and that party. You've got to learn to handle the money I give you a little more intelligently, Irene, he said. You've got to understand that we won't have as much money this year as we had last. I had a very sobering talk with Mitchell today. No one is buying anything. We're spending all our time promoting new issues, and you know how long that takes. I'm not getting any younger, you know. I'm 37. My hair will be gray next year. I haven't done as well as I'd hoped to do, and I don't suppose things will get any better. Yes, dear, she said. We've got to start cutting down, Jim said. We've got to think of the children. To be perfectly frank with you, I worry about money a great deal. I'm not at all sure of the future. No one is. If anything should happen to me, there's the insurance. But that wouldn't go very far today. I've worked awfully hard to give you and the children a comfortable life, he said bitterly. I don't like to see all of my energies, all of my youth, wasted in fur coats and radios and slipcovers and... Please, Jim, she said. Please, they'll hear us. Who'll hear us? Emma can't hear us. The radio. Oh, I'm sick, he shouted. I'm sick to death of your apprehensiveness. The radio can't hear us. Nobody can hear us. And what if they can hear us? Who cares? Irene got up from the table and went into the living room. Jim went to the door and shouted at her from there. Why are you so Christly all of a sudden? What's turned you overnight into a convent girl? You stole your mother's jewelry before they probated her will. You never gave your sister a cent of that money that was intended for her, not even when she needed it. You made Grace Howland's life miserable, and where was all your piety and your virtue when you went to that abortionist? I'll never forget how cool you were. You packed your bag and went off to have that child murdered as if you were going to Nassau. If you'd had any reasons, if you'd had any good reasons... Irene stood for a minute before the hideous cabinet, disgraced and sickened, but she held her hand on the switch before she extinguished the music and the voices, hoping that the instrument might speak to her kindly, that she might hear the Sweeney's nurse. Jim continued to shout at her from the door. The voice on the radio was suave and noncommittal. An early morning railroad disaster in Tokyo, the loudspeaker said, killed 29 people. A fire in a Catholic hospital near Buffalo for the care of blind children was extinguished early this morning by nuns.
The temperature is 47. The humidity is 89. That was Nathan Englander reading The Enormous Radio. It first appeared in The New Yorker in 1947 and is collected in the stories of John Cheever and in several other collections of his work. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Nathan, this is a story that's very much about appearances and about secrets. And the first secret that Cheever lets us in on is that this couple likes to listen to music and they go to concerts and they don't tell their friends this or their neighbors. Why is that such a dirty secret in the first paragraph? Well, that's I mean, this is the metaphysics of short story to me. Like, I love that because this story, what makes this story function is it use unbelievably closely to their point of view. So they are holding to that illusion that marriage is based on this. That's as far as they go. And that's what you're saying, right? That's their first secret. Yeah. But even higher up in that paragraph is the first deception, which is so light. Who can judge her in this fancy town that she has her coat? It's dyed to look like mink. And that's why, right? When I went back at the end, I was like, oh my God, he builds in there one light secret and her one who can blame her deception as a kid who went to school and I, you know, other kids had more money is everyone's story. Mm-hmm. But I remember like I made an Izod shirt that wasn't an Izod, you know, it was like a reused Izod. <laughs> and I remember this kid calling me out like, that's a fake. But it's like, what do you do when you're trying to keep up? And, <laughs> you dye your fitch fur. Yeah, you right. dye your fitch fur and sew an alligator onto your shirt unless it's a crocodile. There's another deception in that paragraph where it says Jim is intentionally naive. How can anyone be intentionally naive? He's not naive. Right, it's intentional. It? Yeah. It's yeah. another sort of sneaky thing in that paragraph. Well, it's it's bathing suit season when we're recording this. But I think that's the point, like the certain things that we need to survive. I always say like you shouldn't be totally self-deceptive in life, but you're allowed to put a bathing suit on and be like, 
I look good. I'm headed to the beach. You know, like <laughs> we need that to survive. So I feel like that, yeah, that is just such a quiet way to say like, this is his life and this is how he holds it. To, we all hold it together. Right, right. Well, then, then this radio comes into their home and it's an aggressive intruder. It has this malevolent green light. It's violent forces actually knock an ornament off a table. It's so anthropomorphized. Why do you think it's necessary for the radio to have that kind of force in this story? First of all, I love that because I hate anthropomorphisms, but this does need to be anthropomorphism. And this is the thing that I love, which is it gives the radio its own like volition and power, which we need. Mm -hmm. The radio is acting weirdly on its own, and this gives that extra power. And back to their point of view, it allows for them to say, we don't understand this thing. We always say, it's a fair thing to say, things have a mind of their own when they're acting up. And there's two parts of it, which I love that that giant sound that comes out, Mm -hmm. like that knocks things for both of them. It's this unbelievable sound. I think it's allowing weirdly that the regular radio was so unbelievably loud that maybe all radios are picking up the whole building, but this one is so set so high that we get to hear it. And I think that's the two part of it. It allows, you know, that the radios has intent and that also it's that every radio could do this. Right. One thing that, that I find puzzling in the story is Jim's role in bringing this thing into the house. You know, he, he refuses to tell her anything about where he got it or why he picked this one. It costs four hundred dollars, which I actually looked up today what that would be in today's dollars, and it's it's more than four thousand dollars. Right. Crazy amount, more than more than right. you'd spend on a TV, you know. Right. So, what do you think was driving him to pick this particular radio, which he wants to surprise her with? I mean, I think there's part this power structure of providing, and then part this weird idea of him not wanting to stress her and insisting on being the provider, even when it's when he's in over his head, and this weird, you know as you know, now that I'm married as a husband, like some weird selfless thing that's also oddly male and infantile, which is he totally loves the radio too. And he keeps saying like, I got this for you. you. I thought it would make you happy. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought like she might've been happy with like a $20 radio, but he insisted both on getting this like Cadillac of radios that he totally comes home and also listens to and loves, you know, but keeps putting it on her. Like I did it for you. And I think that is what's like getting sewn in for the end of their relationship is his wounded selflessness. Before the reading, you mentioned that you thought this would make a great Twilight Zone episode. And in fact, it was adapted for uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Oh, no it, was way. A, it was an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. Do you think of it as kind of a horror story? If you were asking me, is this horrifying? Yes. You know, a social nightmare is far more terrifying to me than a nightmare nightmare. (laughs) So, you know, like, so this is scarier to me than an asteroid coming at Earth movie. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It it came out, the story came out, I think, seven years before the movie Rear Window, which has a kind of a similar thing. You know, if you spy on your neighbors, you're going to see things you don't like and you're going to learn things about yourself. But Jim does come in and say, why are you listening to it? Just turn it off. Why, Why are you? confronting yourself with the sordid things. This is what makes it fabled because he only says that after it causes them trouble. Like I love the unfolding of that too, where it's like curiosity, perception, understanding of what's happening, then shock. And then that night they go to bed like giddy and high Dying and with laughing. laughing. Yeah. yeah. So he only says stop when it starts to poison them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you, you, before the reading, you brought up Facebook and so on. And this is like Facebook, though everyone's presented at their worst, not at their best, you know, she's flipping through people's pages, yeah. <laughs> learning about them, you know. 
on the subway on the way up here, I was just thinking about that metaphor. I want to be like, oh, it's so much like Facebook and Twitter. I was like, no, Facebook is the elevator neighbors. That's everyone right. at their best happiest. And then I was like, it's mixed with reality TV where we love to watch people right. it's come big brother. apart. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it's these other things where like people yeah. come apart. Yeah. Or, so it's that weird mix of our society of the oversharing where people in the end are where they put on a face. And then whether it's, you know, Anthony Weiner or Kardashian or whatever, like where people are we become obsessed with their lives, but then there's a backside of, right. of of sadness. Yeah, well, it captures our addiction to that kind of knowledge. We as readers do what Irene is doing. You know, we snoop. We yeah. we learn everybody's secrets by by reading fiction. What you you're reading secrets basically. Oh, that's awesome! I didn't even think of that. Like that's like another layer to this story, Onion. Because right, exactly. <laughs> what is this story? But me being yeah. totally engrossed in their private life and their yeah. private life. It's that like, yeah, you know infinite yeah. mirror thing from so shots. so the shame is the shame is general yes. <laughs> the shame is general in ireland you know you'll probably hate this interpretation but some critics have written long essays arguing that this is sort of a reinterpretation of of adam and eve it's not really a fall from innocence to experience it's a fall from denial to self-knowledge in a way what, yeah. do, you, what do you think of that comparison I think that question splits really right down the like Catholic Jewish divide. Like they are in an Adam and Eve state, but they're the in Adam, a faux Adam and Eve state. Yeah, which maybe <laughs> works better to how the world is. It's almost like a larger metaphysical state to say like when we are, you know, when we were in that state, we are ignoring many things. You know, these are questions of how we're allowed to live or go on in the world or what is selfish and what is righteous and what is but but. Yeah, their whole balance. It's, it is an Adam and Eve state, but I love that all the sin has already occurred. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What do you think it is that, that happens to Irene in the course of the story? I mean, yes, she bites this apple. She becomes addicted to this radio, but then her behavior changes. And she, you know, is sort of gazing longingly at the Salvation Army musicians. And, and then she's really rude at a dinner party, you know, and a kind of rudeness that she wouldn't have yeah. tolerated in her kids. What's happening in her mind at that point? It's that compulsion slash addiction. Whatever is happening there is just, we're watching her like unravel from it. Like this is the idea, it gets put on him, right? That he is consciously naive. We put consciously na naive on him, but then we see how truly consciously naive she's being. And I don't think it's accidental where she looks at the Salvation Army men in that way. And then at the end of the story, we go to nuns saving blind children. That's the point. They're always on the corner singing clearly at this time or this season. It, and I think that's the point. This is the day where she stops and puts the dollar in the tambourine. Yeah. And I think that's that's what we're saying. It's her trying to hang on. Back to his accusation. When did you become, which I have never heard before. So Christly. Christly and a convent girl. You know, like I love that. And I think that's this notion is it's our first flash where she has to become even more naive to handle the ugliness of the world. Yeah, it's not clear to me whether what she's doing is slowly having her past dawn on her and she's sort of rushing herself away from it or whether she's trying to rewrite. She knows it and she's trying to sort of cover it up with a new personality. It is not allowed to enter into her consciousness what she's scrambling for because if you think about it, it doesn't ever enter her consciousness. He shoves it into her consciousness with such a rage. He's the one that breaks. Yeah. But she's sitting there constantly saying, we're not like that. We're not like that. We're yeah. in love. We're, we don't argue yeah. about money. We don't do this. That is the part that I love where it's like their marriage did not have to implode if she did not make him perjure himself like five times. Yeah. 
and everything she repeats. There's four don't, don't, don't. And then she says, we are not like this. Like, we aren't, are we? She leads the jury. Like she's, <laughs> That's, I think, what really breaks him is her making him. He's fine supporting it. That's it. Back to the expensive radio. He's fine just making that radio appear and hiding their financial troubles. He's fine but, being intentionally naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then it's like she pushed him. She made him. The one thing his character could not stand was being forced to say they're okay. Yeah. And then at the end, she, you know, it does say she's standing there disgraced. Yeah. You know, she's she has had this fall from grace, if only in her own mind. And it's so brutal. That's why I was thinking about it. Like, you know, it's hard also reading a story when you love someone like I'm like, how much credit do I give him? But I just thought it's really a hard the jump after that space break. That last section is such he hammers them. You know, it's yeah. just merciless. And yeah. I think he pulls it off. Like, I think it's magnificent, but it is the back to volume being turned up, like it is, <laughs> you know, that knocks everything off the shelves. It is loud what he does to them. Yeah. And then we get this seemingly bland anodyne newscast of 29 people dead in Japan and a fire in a yeah. blind, you know, orphanage, <laughs> yeah. which is much worse than anything she's heard well, I think on the I, radio. I think that it's just such a back to loudness, but a way to show like, this is her problems. This is her, it is, as I talk about hammering them, it is further, you know, it shrinks down their import, you know, and it is, it's such a wild contrast, but you asked about, uh, you know, if it's a breakout story stylistically before, but stylistically for me, like where rhythm comes in, those last two lines about temperature and humidity are just rhythmically perfect. You know what I'm saying? That it just turns to poetry. It, like those two lines there, I, that's metaphysics. Like there's no way to take it apart and explain why, you, you know, it's not like we need to say humidity, but maybe that in that announcement is the whole story back to our New York lives where it's like, this is what's happening in Ukraine. This is what's happening. And then it's like, oh yeah, don't, don't forget an umbrella. Well, thank you, Nathan. Oh, thank you. Nathan Englander's latest collection of stories is what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. You can hear Nathan read a story by Isaac Bashevis Singer and download more than 85 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. In the digital edition and at newyorker.com, you can listen to the latest short stories in the magazine read by the authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>